playing a game of association. I'm going to lift up to you the uh, symbol, and you tell me what you think the symbol means. So, yeah, if we can have the camera in nice and close on this. What, what does that symbol mean? Love. Okay, ready? Next one. Eh? Health? Is that what you said? Health, yeah. Hospital, you know, medical aid, maybe Switzerland. Okay, next one. McDonald's. Okay, normally it's called the golden arches. We don't have the gold. We, you know, we're saving money and printing in black and white, not color. But yeah, McDonald's. Starbucks. Now, can anyone here tell me what the Starbucks assembly actually is? Eh? Mermaid, yeah. It's the... I never knew that, but I want to hear what your comment was afterwards. <laughs> Maybe it was, you know, the rivals, right? The ones who should be taken down. Yeah, I didn't realize it was a two-tailed mermaid, but I know what it is. What's this? Peace? What else? Hey? It's also uh, known as ban the bomb in the UK, or originally it was the symbol for the campaign for nuclear disarmament, CND. So there you go. Yeah, zombies or biohazard. I was going for biohazard, but I think in every zombie movie, not that I watch zombie movies. I'm a pastor. I don't watch zombie movies. But uh, no, I, I, I actually really enjoy zombie movies. So uh, the stones, the rolling stones. And is that it? I'm trying to remember. Nope, there's a couple more. Rolling stones, very good. Wi-Fi, yes, Wi-Fi. Uh, yeah, one of the comedians in the UK uh, has this routine, and he's like, and his mum's like, oh, oh, you know, I'd like one of those. Um, and uh, and so he's like, what are you talking about? She's like, um, I'd like a free Wi-Fi, please. Because as she goes into the restaurant, it has free Wi-Fi, so she wants a free Wi-Fi. Anyway, it was funny. You have to watch it again. And the last one iPod, okay, good, good, iPod, do you remember that little track thing, that little clicky wheel, yeah, oh, the good old days, before touch screens, that was revolutionary, so, so all of these are symbols that mean something, that as soon as we see them, like, if you know, you, you know, right, and a symbol is something that stands for or represents something else, so we see symbols all the time, and the way that symbols, or the reason that symbols work is because uh, we know what they mean without having to be told. You know, if you had to mentally go through and go, okay, oh, Wi-Fi means internet, which is not with wires, and that means I can go on, you know, if you had to do that every time, you know, there's this kind of instinctual um, link that we make between the symbol and the, the reality. And so in books, uh, we read symbols. Let's see if I can get my slides up. There we go. Okay, word association. We did that. Okay. okay, there we go. Symbol is something that represents or stands for something else. Okay, if you can somehow maybe get give me the power, 
that would be awesome, and then I can just click through. But I don't have the power. Nathan, can you maybe give me the power? Okay, I don't know. Anyway, okay, I'll just say next slide, okay? That we'll, we will go old school, okay? This is when things like Wi-Fi let you, you down or if Dan doesn't charge the battery on the clicker. So, um, so last week I talked about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, uh, and that is an allegory. It's a symbol. Um, so is the book Animal Farm. Anyone read that by George Orwell? Yeah, kind of a required reading in school. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is an allegory. It's a symbol. Uh, so is the movie Avatar or the Truman Show, Fight Club, Spirited Away, um, all allegorical, all symbolic. And then we even have people who are symbolic. So someone who's referred to, next slide, as a modern-day Mother Teresa, we understand what that means. And symbols like this are useful because it helps us to access a lot of information very, very quickly. And so we know that a quote-unquote Mother Teresa is good, whereas a modern-day Hitler is bad, right? There's a negative association there. Uh, and so, next slide. In our scripture this morning, Paul uses symbolism. He uses allegory. And so, as we pause to read Galatians chapter 4, 21 to 31, throughout this morning's teaching, try to listen to where Paul is speaking allegorically, where he's speaking symbolically, where he's using something from history to represent something else. Now, if we were to break down uh, Galatians 4, 21 to 31, we would see that Paul does four things. Next slide. First, he asks a question, then he tells us some history, then he creates an allegory or a symbol based on that history, and fourth, he applies that allegory to a current reality. So question, history, allegory, reality. And this symbol, this allegory, is important because it acts as, next slide, as a bridge uh, between the history that we read in verse 21 to 23, and the current reality that Paul describes in verse 29 to 31. So let me give you a spoiler. You know those films where it has the preview and you watch the spoiler or, or, or you watch the, uh, you know, the promo and it kind of maps out the whole movie and you think, you've just saved me $15 because I don't need to watch it anymore? Well, that's kind of what this is. I'm going to give you a spoiler. Um, and, and the spoiler is, is to say that this reality that Paul is dealing with in verse 29 and on is, next slide, is persecution. Oh, sorry, if we go back one more slide. Okay, persecution. So Jesus' followers are being given a hard time because they believe that their relationship with God is based on faith and not works, which is what we've been talking about ad nauseum over these past few weeks, faith and not works. And because of this belief, they, they are being persecuted. And so I want us to know this ahead of time because the history and the allegory only make sense if we know what the reality is. So this is the reality. So Paul starts with a question in verse number 21. Next slide. It says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? This is like, like a teenager go, going up to her dad and asking him, hey, can I get a tattoo? And the dad says, absolutely not. Are you out of your mind? That's what I would say. And then the teen says, well, fine. Mum will say yes. 
Now, the wise dad in that moment would say, would actually quote the words of verse 21. He would say, why don't you tell me? You who want to be under mum's authority, are you not aware of what mum will say? And, and so at that, at that moment, dad is saying that mum and I are a team and we work together. And Paul is saying that the law and the promise are a team and that the, uh, that the law won't say anything that, that the promise doesn't support. So you can't use the law to undermine the promise, just like you can't use mum to undermine your dad. This is Paul's point. So what does the law say? Next slide, verse number 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. Next slide. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. So this is where Paul answers his question by bringing in some history. Next slide. And he's going back to Abraham. Because like I explained before, Abraham's promise from God was fulfilled by Jesus. Jesus is Abraham's seed. And the law was this stopgap that bridged Abraham's time and Jesus's time. And so, and so Paul kind of jumps over Moses and the law and he goes back to Abraham, who is known as the father of faith. Now, at this point in our narrative, no names have yet been mentioned. But to save us some time this morning, let's name who the main characters are. Next slide. We've got Hagar and her son Ishmael, and then we've got Sarah and her son Isaac. And both Ishmael and Isaac are the sons of Abraham. So Paul is introducing us to this fork in the road. Okay, you have Ishmael and you have Isaac. And really he's asking us, who do we identify with? Do we identify with Ishmael or do we identify with Isaac? And it's, it, it works because both Ishmael and Isaac are both sons of, of Abraham. Um, verse number 23 says that Ishmael was born of Hagar, the slave woman, which we read about in Genesis 16, verse 1. Next slide. Now Sarah, or Sarai, Abraham's wife, because they hadn't had the name change yet. Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had uh, an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, uh, okay, can we move on a slide? There we go, perfect. So, so she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Genesis 16, verse 1 and 2. So Ishmael was the child of the flesh, meaning that he came about the usual way. But then five chapters later and 14 years later, in Genesis 21, we see the second fork in the road or the second choice. Next slide. It says, Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham, to Abraham in his old age at the very time that God had promised him. Genesis 21 verse 2. So Isaac was born as the result of, of, of divine promise and having faith in God's timing, whereas Ishmael was born as the, he was born early, and he was born as the, as the result of normal sexual processes and human impatience. Okay, so this is the history lesson. He's asked a question, then he's told a little bit of history. But what Paul does now, next slide, is he takes this history and he turns it into an allegory. He turns it into a symbol. Um, 
which means that Hagar and Sarah and Ishmael and Isaac now no longer represent themselves. They now represent something larger, something symbolic, something beyond their place in history. From now on, Paul is no longer talking about Hagar and Sarah. He's talking about something else. Verse number 24, next slide. These things are being taken figuratively or allegorically or symbolically. The woman or the women represent two covenants One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Next slide. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. Next slide. For it is written, be glad, barren woman, you who Never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who are never in labor. Next slide. Because more are the children of the desolate woman, who is Sarah, than of her who has a husband, which, which is Hagar. Okay, so at this moment, Paul wouldn't win any preaching competitions. Because what he's doing is he's taking something from history He's removing it from its historical context, uh, and he's turning it into a symbol in order to make a theological point. This is a preaching no-no. You don't take scripture and just make it mean whatever you want it to say so that you can make a sermon, even though all pastors at some point do that, and I'm a guilty one, right? In in fact, I have a mug uh, in, in my room which says, which is great, from someone in this church, I won't say who, but it makes me smile every time because it says, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. And I love that. So, uh, but that's a no-no. But Paul is kind of doing that here. But it's not actually that bad. As long as Paul makes it clear that this is what he is up to, which he does. Verse number 24 says that these things are to be taken figuratively or, or uh symbolically so he tells you that this is what he's actually doing so at this moment we know that like i said paul is no longer talking about historical sarah or historical uh, hagar or historical ishmael or historical isaac instead he's talking about symbolic hagar and so on and so forth you know he was he was talking about history this history lesson and all of a sudden he's turned 90 degrees and now we're off-roading it in the kind of in the scrub of symbolism Okay. Now, you might say, as I did when I when I when I read this, Paul, this is really confusing. Why don't you just say what you want to say? Why are you why are you saying all of this? Why are you taking verses out of context? Why are you making people mean symbolically what they never meant in real life? Why not just tell us what you wanted to say? But but the thing is, he is. But and the original audience of this letter would have would have made all of the connections. But because we live 2,000 years later, in another culture and time, we kind of need to have, have our hands held a bit as we go through this. So here, here we go. This is kind of how, how we understand it. Um, you know, have you ever seen those, uh, those, those posters um, about COVID-19? Anyone over the past year and a half or two years seen any posters about anything COVID-19 related. Okay, all of us, over and over and over and again. And what you often see on these posters is you have a person standing here, then you have a red arrow that's emanating from this person. And this red arrow 
represents the microscopic particles of the COVID-19 virus. Okay, and, uh, and you look at that and you say, well, I know that this arrow, that, that when we pass COVID-19, it does not look like a big red arrow that comes from my face and hits someone else with the pointy end. Instead, I know that there's all these little microscopic particles. But, but we also know that if you try to represent those microscopic, microscopic particles on the poster, it wouldn't work because they are invisible to the naked eye. And so you need to have this big red arrow uh, and we look at that and we understand what it means. And so, you know, we know that we shouldn't sing without masks on and shout without masks on and sometimes even moistly talk without masks on. You know, that, that we have to be careful because of this red arrow that's not really a red arrow. But what if Paul saw the poster? I wonder what he would make of it. Probably what would have to happen is that someone from our time would need to explain to him what microbes are and viruses and things that are smaller than the naked eye, you know, and why there's a big red arrow and what that means, right? We would need someone to explain to Paul because it's out of his context and uh, what he's used to. Even though for us, it makes absolute perfect sense. You don't need to explain to me. And it's the same here. We need to be told what the Galatians would have grasped intuitively. And so Paul says that Hagar and Sarah represent figuratively, symbolically, uh, you know, the two covenants. Next slide. Sarah represents the, uh, yeah, the covenant of promise with Abraham. And Hagar represents the later covenant of the law with Moses. Now, we know that this isn't literally true. We know that, that Hagar has nothing to do with Moses because Moses lived hundreds of years after Hagar, and so she can't actually represent the law, but Paul's right when he says that she is an allegory or a symbol of the law uh, because her, her giving birth to Ishmael was a result of human agency and human choice, not through faith in God. And so through, 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 through this woman, through this slave woman, uh, Abraham tried to grab hold of God's promise through his own works. So this symbol works. Now, let's imagine that we're standing there with, with Abraham at this fork in the road. Um, you know, on the left is Hagar or the flesh doing things our own way. And here to the right is Sarah or faith trusting in God. It's a fork in the road. Uh, well, as we're standing there with Abraham, kind of pause here, you know, as a guide and he then explains to us what's a little bit um, maybe further down the road around the corner. Things that we can't yet see. He explains to us where this road ends up and where this road ends up. It's, it's a bit like a choose-your-own-adventure. So in verse 22, next slide, Paul says that Abraham had Ishmael by the slave woman. And because Ishmael was born from a slave, he was a slave. And then verse number 25, next slide, Hagar, which is Ishmael's mum, represents Mount Sinai where the law was handed out. And Mount Sinai also represents the actual physical Jerusalem because, because Jerusalem represents the Jews who believe that faithfulness to the law would save them. Okay, super confusing. Let's maybe break it down a bit. So next slide, you've got Hagar, representing Mount Sinai, which represents physical Jerusalem, which represents the law-obeying Jews. This is option one. But then 
Paul also says that Abraham had Isaac by the free woman, by Sarah. This is option two. And because Isaac was born of a free woman, he is born free. He is a child of promise, um, and therefore he is an heir, like we learned about last week. And just as, next slide, physical Jerusalem is the mother or the one who gave birth to the law, so spiritual Jerusalem, this Jerusalem above, is the mother of those who are trusting in God's promise, who are living by faith. So we've got Hagar, the slave representing Mount Sinai, that represents physical Jerusalem, which represents the law-obeying Jews. And then we've got Sarah, the free woman, who's representing spiritual Jerusalem, who represents those who have faith in Jesus. So what? So this, if you want to be free, then you have to be born of faith. So he's taught us some history. Next slide. Then he's used this history to paint an allegory. Well, why has Paul told us this symbol? Why has Paul told us this super convoluted uh, symbol? Well, like I said at the beginning, it's because the Galatians are facing a current reality, and this is where it's all headed, because this reality is persecution. The yeah, the Christians in Galatia are being treated badly because they believe that Jesus, um, that faith in Jesus alone is enough to save them. And just like this idea is not very popular now, okay, you don't win friends by saying this now, so you didn't win friends by saying this then. And this is probably a major part of the reason why I, he is, you will be rewarded. And if you act bad, you will be punished. Right? This makes sense. And in 21st century Canada, it's, it's the same. Only today we don't talk about the law of Moses. Today we talk about the law of karma. If, if, you know, if, if you're driving and someone cuts you off in traffic, and then further down the road you see, like, you know, the number of times I've, I've, I've prayed when someone has treated me wrong on the road, and then I go, Lord, I pray there's a police person down the road who can pull them over? And, uh, you know, when it happens, you, you know, you feel right. Everything's right with the world because they've got what they deserve. They had it coming to them. And in a culture that worships karma like ours, to preach a message that says that even the worst offenders among us can be redeemed and accepted by a holy God, uh, not by earning it or by proving themselves, but purely through the grace of God, this message is offensive but it's only offensive to those who think of themselves as mostly good. But if you're aware of just how rubbish and sinful and repugnant and awful you are, then the news of Jesus' cleansing power and renewing grace is actually the best news in the world. But here's what I see. I think that most of us, if we're honest, want karma to be the operating system for everyone else but for grace to be our operating system. We want God to punish them, uh, whoever them is, whilst cleansing us and redeeming us. God, would you treat me with grace, but would you treat my neighbor with the law of karma? So we say, you know, so it's karma for you, and grace for me, and karma for you, and grace for me. 
and Karma for you and Grace for me. You know, that, uh, that, jo- that song by Boy George Culture Club, you know, Karma Chameleon. You know, they come and go, come and go. This is what we are doing. We're saying Karma for you and Grace for me. Karma for you and, and Grace for me. We're just singing that song through our lives. But, but here's, here's how it works, is that if we want God to let us off the hook, if he wants to show me grace, then I have to acknowledge that God wants to let you off the hook as well, that God's um, strongest yearning is to let you off the hook. And if God lets you off the hook, then I have to let you off the hook. And this just rubs us up the wrong way because you've wronged me. And karma says that you have to pay and so if you're living in a society that's being told by a small, a small group of people that in Jesus they have to forgive their enemies and they have to love their enemies, then this small group of people are going to be persecuted because they're being antisocial. And then to make things worse, Jesus then says to this small group of people who are being persecuted to bless those who persecute you. Can you imagine how this would rile up a society that's operating on karma? And so life gets hard for those who believe in the radical grace of, of, of Jesus Christ. And in this situation, it's so tempting to trade in radical grace for that old, comfortable, karmic system where you earn righteousness, where things make sense once again. But as Paul reminds us in verse 28, next slide. Next one again. It says, now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. And this is the promise of grace. This is the promise of the new Jerusalem where everything will be made right. And then he says, next slide, just as Isaac was persecuted and mocked by Ishmael. In Genesis 21 verse 9, he says, it is the same now. Look at that. It is the same now. Nothing's changed, Paul is saying. Nothing has changed since that time. And don't expect it to. He's managing our expectations. Next slide. And so, friends, as followers of Jesus Christ who proclaim this message of radical grace to a karmic society, we should expect to offend people and to raise eyebrows. But we don't offend people by, by standing up for our rights. And we don't affect, offend people by being generally unlikable we don't offend people by by being offensive or by winning arguments on the internet that's not how we offend people we offend people through radical grace through love and through forgiveness and through reconciliation through living the way of the cross and when we offend people through trusting in the promise of grace and living out this promise of grace then they will respond negatively because this gospel to them, as the Bible says, is foolishness. And it's a, a stumbling block. It flies in the face of a, a society that's based on karma, on getting what you deserve. Now, Ishmael was 14 years older than Isaac. So when the bullying went on in the household of Abraham, Isaac didn't stand a chance. He was 14 years younger. He was outmatched and he was outgunned. And so when people respond to us negatively and uh, by being big um, or by, by, by saying nasty things to us, they can seem big and intimidating and imposing. And it's so tempting, like I said in that situation, to quit radical grace and instead to sink to their level and to, and, and to give them what we feel 
they deserve. But at that moment, what we're doing is we're trading in the cross for, for karma. But we shouldn't ever do that if we're followers of Jesus. Because if there's anything that we've learned from the history of Hagar and Sarah, and if there's anything we've learned from the allegory or the symbol of Hagar and Sarah, it's that we live in an upside-down world. And, and this, and, and, you know, so we have to face this reality of this upside-down world. And sometimes this world hurts us. And even though we might be living in the same household as a bully, you know, thinking of this world, you know, I'm not talking about your household particularly, but, but, but just living in the same world as people who are bullies to us, we need to remember that verse 31 says that we're not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. We may live in the same house, as it were, in this earth, but our lineage is completely different. And the best way, friends, for us uh, or, or for God to bring his kingdom is by his free children living free. You know that, that quote, the best revenge is living well. People who've been freed from the vicious cycle of the karmic system by embracing Jesus' grace. And then these people are free to show forgiveness and free to love and free to pray for their enemies with the love and the grace and the mercy of, of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this morning, what allegory is your life showing? What symbol are you showing in your life? Is your, is your symbol this, uh, this endless knot of the karmic system where the cycles of cause and effect just go on and on and on and on with, with you, you getting what you deserve and retaliation and so on and so on and so on? Or do you carry the symbol of the cross? Just two straight lines and one upright line that connects us with the radical grace of a God who, that, that connects us with our friends and families, with this radical grace that we have received. So what is your shape? Is it karma or is it the cross? Let's close with a scripture which is up on the screen. It says, to this very hour, we, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our hands. Next slide. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Next slide. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment.